Hi, I'm Mark Scott, Secretary of the New South Wales Department of Education, and welcome to Every Student, the podcast where I get to introduce you to some of our great leaders in education. Today's guest is a former student of Punchbowl Boys High School, where he played cricket for Punchbowl Boys, not quite as famous as Jeff Thompson and Lenny Pascoe, students a few years ahead of him, but he uh, went on to have a distinguished career in education, and today he runs the New South Wales Teachers Federation. Maury Mulheron, uh, welcome to the Every Student Podcast. Thank you. Um, look, this is an unusual kind of conversation. I'm sure that none of my predecessors as Secretary or Director General have ever recorded an interview with the head of the Federation. Uh, nor mine. Uh, but... <laughs> But, you know, the way I viewed it, I, I, I say to people when I'm travelling around that I always value um, talking education with you and uh, I thought it would be good to share one of those conversations with a, with a broader audience. Um, you know, early on in your teaching career, you started as a casual teacher in southwestern Sydney and then you did a short stint at Finlay High School. Yes. Um, you know, how, how important do you think it is in the development of a teacher that, that they have that kind of experience, you know, the, the rural experience? Did you learn a lot from it? I certainly did. I certainly learned how far, how big, how far away towns were, and how big New South Wales was. Uh, I remember driving the 13 hours in an old beat-up Toyota, hitting Finlay, and looking in the rear, my rear vision mirror, and noticed I'd just left Finlay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, I learned a lot about uh, country people, uh, isolation. Um, and just how large our system is at the time at Finlay. I, I encourage young people to, to go to country schools if they can, west of the divide. Um, we did have the transfer system back then, and that kind of was, you know, there's always that safety net that you weren't there you forever. come back. Yeah, yeah and I think um, that's probably why we're not getting as many. As it's still an issue. I, I mean, yeah. I've just been out talking to lots of principals in regional areas, and I think the staffing issue is as big an issue now. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and one of the interesting things I think we can see, we can talk about this later on, is that, you know, a real challenge, I think, around um, supply of casual teachers with yes. all the teachers have been recruited with Gonski funding out in schools yes. now. And yes, yes. So, so we're dealing with all that. Sure. Were you always going to be a teacher? Um, oh, were were I... your old teachers at Punchbowl Boys High surprised to see you um, enter the staff room? I don't think so, no. I always wanted to be a teacher, I think, from a very young age. Uh, my experience, I went to Punchbowl Primary, I went to Punchbowl Boys High School, I played soccer for Punchbowl Soccer Club, uh, cricket for Punchbowl Sports Club, we shopped at Punchbowl Shopping Centre and caught the train from Punchbowl Railway Station. So we, uh, it was all things Punchbowl at the time, yeah. but I always wanted to be a teacher and uh, I had some marvellous uh, teachers, many eccentric um, we had uh, wonderful music teachers, English teachers, but it was the English teachers, I think, that uh, really inspired me to want to read literature and uh, ultimately teach and to write, of course. Yeah. When, I, um, when I talked with Eddie Wu, I mean, I think one of the really interesting things about Eddie is that he turned up at day one of uni thinking he was going to be an English teacher and a drama teacher mm. and he became our most famous maths teacher. <laughs> was there ever any doubt that English history was the teaching subject for you? Look, I toyed with uh, music teaching. Um, I had an extraordinary music teacher, a man named Arthur Cook, um, who would, uh, and we had a very small class, only four or five boys, and the principal uh, was good enough to uh, let it run. And But Arthur Cook was, um, uh, he, he was like uh, this comedian as well as a music teacher, wore these incredible suits, and but he taught us by, to listen. And one way he taught us to listen was to put a recording of a steam train on 
and we have to listen every lesson to these steam trains going through loud through these speakers. And he would say, what did you hear? And we'd say, well, it's steam train. And he'd yell at us, you did more than a steam train. Did you hear the missing piston? Did you hear the change in the gradient? And mm. he taught us to listen. Then he taught us to do uh, looking at music scores by instead of actually looking at the score to start with, he would play the music and then fill the blackboard with coloured chalk. So if the oboe played, that would be a certain symbol. Or there was a timpani crash. And then he would, so we just did this massive coloured chalk and symbols and asterisks and dashes and ticks all over the board. It looked like no order whatsoever. Then he would play the music again and circle the common motifs. So then you'd see that the violin picked up the, the melody, then the oboe picked up the melody, then he would give us the music score. And by that stage, of course, we are now starting to see the structure of the music. Mm. You know, brilliant teachers like yeah. that, uh, they, 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 that, that never leaves you. Um, and so I always wanted to be a, a teacher that somehow got to kids and inspired them. And, and, and tell us about teaching English and history what was the intrinsic reward of that for you in dealing with the kids at your school? Well, look, it'd be a bit glib to say that history teaching is the only job where the state pays you to undermine it, but, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, it was really um, that love of literature, um, a love of theatre, of drama. Um, I could see the connections, of course, with history as well. So when I went to university, it was just a matter of uh, making sure I majored in those two subjects and... Uh, and I, I love that. There's, there's a kind of, I look back in those days of um, uni studying English. My, my parents were, come from very poor backgrounds and both had to leave school at 13 and 14, it's the depression years. And I remember my father, um, uh, who was an avid book collector and, collector and reader, um, he bought the same um, texts that I was studying at uni just yeah. to read them. Yeah. You know, while I was going through it, there was a kind of sadness to that, that he was a man in his 50s and 60s had never an opportunity but was so pleased that someone in his family yeah. was going to uni and he was yeah. going to follow the kind yeah. of literature we were, yeah. we were studying. Yeah. When, when you were appointed uh, principal of Cura, you, you, you ran Cura High School in yes. the Illawarra, Illawarra for a decade. It ran me at times too. Yeah, we'll talk about that. How, um, how ready were you day one? to assume the principalship, when oh, you look back on it now? Not really. Um, I, I think I was, I, was, I was prepared in a sense that uh, I knew it was a, a very um, demanding job. I'd been a deputy up in Met South West Sydney for five or six years prior to, to that in, in a, in a, in, at Ingleburn High School. So I knew what the demands were, but you go in and um, you just hope that you're going to be surrounded very quickly by good people. And when I arrived at Kira, I was surrounded by good people. Mm. I mean, I, I really fell on my feet in the sense that I had two very capable deputies, um, a good executive, a staff that were willing to um, uh, take risks. Uh, and uh, so in many ways, I, I, I fell into the school that uh, I needed. And, and Kira, that Kira was the one. One, one of the, the, the things I've discussed with principals as I travel around, and I think as you think about it, you know, most of our principals were clearly good teachers. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't have been promoted to be a head teacher or an AP. Some will be quite adept in the admin uh, side of running a school. But finally, when you get to be a principal, you know, it's really all about people. 
complex, demanding, unpredictable students, complex, demanding, unpredictable teachers, increasingly demanding parents, let alone the department and the demands it puts on. But really, the leadership thing is all about the people thing. Um, How much did you have to learn about, you know, leading that complex, demanding infrastructure? Look, Mark, I think uh, I've always thought that, uh, 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 and this is not my original thought, but it's one I certainly agree with, effective teaching is about effective relationships with, Mm. with, with kids. And the first job of a teacher is to form those effective relationships. And it's no different in leadership. You know, effective leadership is really essentially about forming effective relationships. So I think I I knew that when I went into it. My partner had been a principal earlier than I had and, um, and gave good advice and that. You've got to... Um, get to a situation where people want to talk to you, they, they're prepared to come and give you advice, you listen to that advice. So having an open door policy, talking to people, physically getting out of the office, going and visiting people, talking to them, and also getting making sure that you were not seen to be um, someone who was leading from afar, that you were uh, uh, alongside people and that giving that, that almost that physical uh, presence of being alongside people, work, walking with them. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, I've, I've always believed that you can't be an effective principal if you haven't been an effective teacher earlier in your career. Because of the credibility and the Absolute, insight that it ab- needs to bring. Yeah, you yeah. can't just talk the talk. You've got to be able to walk the walk. So when you're talking about assessment and strategies and, and pedagogy and behaviour management and what's worked for you and what didn't work for you, uh, teachers can very quickly... Uh, sniff someone out who is really uh, not capable of doing that themselves. Well, interesting things, though, I think particularly for a high school teacher, though, you know, if you're a primary school principal, then you, you may have specialised in stage three or you mm. may have been king of the kindergarten kids, but basically you've taught lots of classes. How does a secondary school principal, particularly a new one, demonst- an English history one, demonstrate that expertise with the the team teaching physics or the visual arts teacher or the geography and economics teacher? Well, I think this is about forming a good relations with your head teachers and, and um, you've got to rely on uh, the knowledge and subject expertise of your executive, your head teachers. And I had a, a good group of executive. Yes, you can't be an expert in everything, single syllabus and subject, but you've got to be able to at least... Uh, talk to those head teachers and get get them to be able to explain to them how they're programming, their assessment strategies. It's why I um, sometimes look nervously at the number of non-curriculum head teachers that have been created in some schools. I'm, I'm a great believer that the vast, overwhelming number of head teachers should be from a curriculum uh, background because that's that's where that's where we deliver in the classroom. Yeah. Um- an unusual path, I, I would have thought, from my observation, to move from being principal of a school to president of the union. I mean, I mean, has there been many um, many school principals who've done that journey the way that you've done? Well, not too many in the post-war period. I think Barry Mainfield was a primary principal uh, mm. back in the eighties, um, late seventies, eighties. In the early part of the union's history, there was uh, the principals. Uh, 
uh, were uh, very conservative and dominated the union, but in the post-war period that changed, certainly with the vapour boom. Yes, it is unusual, but I've been involved in the Federation since I joined in, and uh, be, be, began teaching in 1978. I'd been on the executive for over 20 years. I'd been a vice president. Uh, I'd been on the federal executive of the union. I'd been involved in different campaigns around funding that for many years. So it wasn't uh, as um, unusual a step from no involvement suddenly becoming the president. I'd been um, involved and uh, when people prevailed upon me to come in and work for the union, um, I, I finally agreed. Answered the call. I, I mean, I think one of the interesting things, I mean, the Federation represents principles. Yes. Um, but, you know, from, from the history that I can understand here in New South Wales in the last decade or so, Secondary Principles Council, Primary Principles Association have developed stronger professional voices, have been mm. more engaged by government and probably the department over that time. And, and sometimes I think, um, you know, when teachers think of who the department is or who establishment is, it's often the principal. Mm. Uh, and so coming in with a lens of being a principal, do you think that changes your perspective on the challenge of leading the union and the complexity of some of these issues? Look, um, I think it gives you insights into the, into the fact that no one's got all the answers and um, everyone's got an important role to play in a school. Uh, I think um, it's far too easy to kind of have scapegoats. Um, and I think that having experience in principle allows me to, I speak with some degree of credibility, I would hope, Two principal groups. Yep. Um, I was speaking to a principal group out of Fairfield only yesterday afternoon after school, and uh, many of the things they were talking about resonated with me from my experience, and I could I could echo back some of their concerns and some of the issues that they were confronting. Um, and I think it allows me to bring that perspective into the union and to make sure we don't have a them and us attitude. I think it's very important for people to understand that the the principal is not the employer. They are, after all, a teacher, and the original use of the word principal was an, as an adjective. They are mm. the principal teacher of the school, and um, I think uh, that's important. We now have many principals uh, on our state council, uh, sitting on our state executive. We have a principals committee. We have a very successful principals conference. Recognise that uh, they play a very key role in our schools. One, one of the things <clears throat> I think that, I mean the department is now investing more in identification of aspiring principals, putting them through training and development programs, trying to improve the professional development um, that's on offer to principals. And I think there's been a lot of research that says actually historically Australia has underprepared principals for the role. And one of the reasons it's complex is all the people that principals have to deal with, but also invariably a good principal wants to bring about change at a school. So you were at Cura for a decade what were the what were some of the challenging changes that you tried to implement, and tell us about what your journey was on the transformation you tried to bring. <clears throat> it's an interesting question. I think the the greatest challenge I found um, at the school very early on was um, potentially potentially a decline in enrolments, and uh, which also was connected to the gender breakup of the school. It was. Uh, at the time called Kira Technology High School, we eventually dropped the technology tag 
It used to be Kira Boys High School and we were next door to a performing arts high school. We had a private girls' school in our drawing area, a private Catholic boys' school. We had a selective school up the road. And we were in, I think, a potentially difficult situation. And we found, when I looked at the stats, that... uh, about 70% boys, 30% girls. Mm. So I, I, I remember taking the executive out in the playground and saying, what do you notice? And they said, litter. I said, well, yeah, we'll fix that up at some point. Uh, kids out of uniform, yeah, and we'll fix that up too. But I think uh, what I was trying to show to them was that the boys took up virtually all of the physical space and the same was happening in the classrooms. And so we set about then, we said that is our big tackle. When we looked at the stats, we were two-thirds out of area. So we weren't really gaining for the system. We are just taking kids from other schools and we're taking mainly boys and we were not attracting girls. And when I looked at the, all the, I got all the data from the primary schools from kindergarten on and we, they were basically 50-50. So how come it's 70-30 at the high school when our drawing schools, our feeder schools, our partner schools were 50-50? What's changing? So that became the, the I think probably the most important thing we did was to, we created gender classes in year seven and eight Boys, girls, and boys' classes, girls' classes. Nothing magical about it, but it uh, allowed us to go to the community and say that uh, we are very cognizant of the of the need for girls to be given space and um, and boys to also be uh, given their chance to learn. And we brought them together on other social things, but it, for the core subjects, we had separate classes. After three years of it, and we also we did a lot of professional development about gender equality and, and that we looked at our curriculum patterns, we looked at um, performing arts opportunities and a whole range of things. But what we did do, by the time I left Kira in 2011, we'd gone from 70, 30, 65, 35 to 51%, 49% boys and girls. Mm. And we were virtually all bar of uh, kids with sibling uh, enrolment rights virtually all in area. So we, we, we turned it around. I think that was, I felt that was one of the most important achievements in, in recreating a comprehensive co-educational school which we had had lost. And, and was that a confidence builder for you and the team, the fact that you could, you know, run your diagnostic, look at the data, come up with a strategy, see the results? It was, and it was a team effort, I've got to yeah. say. I mean, I've got, you've got to be really careful that it, it wasn't Maury sitting in office with, with the, you know, brainstorming. You know, the, the, the initial conversation was the deputies and I over a beer one night. You know, what are we going to do? You know, it was that kind of, let's throw a lot of ideas around. Um, and each idea we came up with, we could think of a reason why we wouldn't do it. And then we eventually came up with, well, the real, the data is showing is we need to get more girls and local girls back in our school. That's the simple equation that we've got to try and solve. So then when we went to the executive, we had some, some pushback, we had some people questioning it, but I think there was enough faith that we, at least our motives were pretty genuine. And by saying that we will be evaluating, this is a genuine evaluation, we did an exhaustive evaluation after the first year. You know, we took a lot of time to interview kids and parents and teachers, overwhelming support for it. The group that liked it least were the girls. Who wanted yeah. they wanted to go back and uh, have the boys yeah. in the room? That, that blew us away when yeah, we. It, it was an interesting kind yeah. of thing, but I think the fact that we that we we in, involved people in it early on. And did uh, you stick with it? So did you? Is it still the case? At I'm, not, I'm not sure now. I think all the time you were there. Yeah, all the time we were there, and uh, and I think it was um, it neutralised the sending the boys to our school and the girls to a private Catholic school, for instance. Yeah. You know, girls Catholic yeah. school. 
Yeah, one of the interesting discussions I think we've had over time is to really think through um, the role of the system and the role of individual schools. I, I was reflecting earlier, someone said to me, oh, trying to change the department must be like mm. trying to turn around a battleship. And I said, well, I think it's the wrong metaphor, really. I think, mm. I think more of the armada, you know, there mm. are 2,200 schools, 2,200 principals like you at Kira, mm. all trying to do their best to improve the quality of teaching, improve learning outcomes, lifting the life opportunities for mm. kids. And if, in fact, you can create an environment where enough schools are doing that, you're lifting the system. And so part of the challenge is the supporting infrastructure yes. that you wrap around so that a principal like you or others can get the expertise, can get the support. But I think you've been a bit critical that the supporting infrastructure hasn't been as strong as you feel that it needs to be. Absolutely. I think... Um I think we really have got to, uh, uh, we've got to have a mental picture that is not the principle uh, as the hero model that brings about systemic reform or even school-based reform. Uh, it may work for a finite period, it may, but is it sustainable? And that's why I've always been a fan of systemic reform. Sure, innovation's important and, and uh, mavericks are important, but we can't, we can't reform a system on just uh, the certain individuals who happen to stumble into a principal's position. We need to create that support. The big system priorities need to be um, there, build the framework around it. And in that a secure environment, then you, do, then, then, then you can get innovation, but innovation within parameters. I mean, after all, we don't know, people are only custodians of their school, they're only employees yeah. passing through it. Yeah. It's, it's not their private uh, academy. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we've got to make sure that uh, people understand that, the, that there is an, a huge advantage to being a public education system that many private schools don't have. Yeah. We, we can achieve massive economies of scale. We can have uh, standards being applied right across the system. We've just got to knit, find ways, as Cathy Wiley in New Zealand calls it, we've got to form, find ways to form those vital connections between schools mm. so that we're not reinventing the wheel yeah. or having a choose-your-own-adventure kind of uh, yeah, approach. I, 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 I see it the same way, I think. I mean, and I sometimes say I'll know we're on the right track when I hear how people talk about the department. Yes. That, that if in fact they roll their eyes, it's the dead hand of bureaucracy, more rules, more imposition um, that we get in the way, then that's, that's should, not great. We shouldn't be frightened of the word bureaucracy, Mark. I, I, I mean, we, we've got you know, 2,200 sites. We've yeah. got a workforce of, uh, uh, what, about 45, 40,000 full-time yeah, teachers. Well, yeah, um, yeah. We've got a, uh, then we, when we add all the other staff on, over 100,000 people. Yeah. We bring about 800,000 young people onto our sites each and every day. Why should we be apologising, saying we need a fairly large bureaucracy out there supporting this, uh, supporting um, this thing? If it was a corporation, it would be a very large corporation well, that would I, I run something. That. I suppose. Let, let me let me rephrase slightly. Uh, um, what you don't want the bureaucracy to be is a dead hand on the no. operations of schools. And so I suppose I I feel that we'll know we're on the right track when when schools feel the strength of the department behind them. So I have a challenge running a school, great resources, yes. great expertise. Uh, they can pair me up with someone who's been through this battle in the past and this is what they did. We can draw on best practice. And there's a real sense of the virtue and the opportunity that comes as being one of 2,200 schools. And principals don't feel alone battling yes. the department and feel supported by the department. We talked about systemic reform. One of the ones that you talked about, that I've been talking about um, 
stirred on by you, is doing a better job at the key transition points. Yes. Uh, particularly um, year six through year seven. You want to sure. talk a bit about that? Look, I think it's, 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 a, it's a critical um, need. Uh, we, we do it well in a lot of, uh, a lot of places. Uh, I'd probably like to see a more um, systemic approach to it. Um, we uh, we saw that as uh, when I was talking earlier about the the uh, rebuilding our enrolments and yeah. the girls. But part and parcel of that that I should have mentioned was that we formed a very very close relationship with our with our partner schools, primary schools. And when I mean close, I don't mean an expo night every every few few months. I mean that virtually every week, every fortnight, they were either in our school we were there. Uh, we were either doing show lessons in Japanese or kids were coming up using our kitchens or we we're having a joint uh, concert band. Um, we were inviting parents up to award nights. We had a whole lot of programs that we were running. Our PE kids, uh, PDH PE year 11, would run their sports carnivals or coach their So there's a multitude of programs, all to break down the mythology that the high school was this great big scary place. So we wanted to get to a point where the local kids in the primary schools and the teachers down there not just became neutral but became our advocates. Mm. And I think we eventually did that. It was it was tough at first but we just started morning teas, chats, an early breakfast sometime with the principals, then we formed a committee, then we got more formal, then we involved other people. And over time, and I've got to say, my primary principal colleagues were brilliant. They just came on board, uh, all of them came on board, and we got tremendous support. And so that cha- that helped us change the the, the, the myths that the, 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 that the primary school was great, but gee, where would I send my kid to high school? And yeah. and so Kira became the school of choice for the in-area kids. Yeah, one of the interesting things that I see too, I think, I, I sometimes think when I'm visiting schools, the most confident, happiest, you know, top of the world kids are the year six kids. They clamour their yeah. way to the top of that school. They're leading school assemblies. They've got the lead role in all the performances. They're, they're out and about. But we know through the Tell Them From Me survey, you drop them in a secondary school they lose that connection yes. with the classroom teacher. They're all of a sudden bottom of a very big pile. And we, and the confidence and engagement can go. And, and it just strikes me that as a system, this is one of the advantages of being a system. That's, that's spot really on. We need to resource it, of course. It takes a lot of time. But certainly we, when year six kids come into year seven, secondary teachers have a tendency to baby them. You know, yeah. think they're the little ones, whereas they were the leaders. Yeah. They, were the, they were the kids making yeah, the Anzac Day speeches. Before, right? Exactly right. So one of the things we did, of course, was to have uh, significant joint curriculum planning between the primary schools and the high schools, so joint professional development days where we, we sent math teachers down and English teachers down, and we suddenly came back and think, oh, gee, the stuff we're doing in Year 7, they were doing that in Year 5, mm. you know. We've got to maybe lift yeah. our game, yeah. lift Expectation. our expectations. Yeah. Uh, so that was very informative. And by the same token, the primary school teachers adjusted too. Well, if that's what you're expecting kids to be doing in Year 7, we now need to do much more. I think science was one of the areas that they were not, they were, they were weaker on. And they realised that the science syllabus in, 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 in secondary was important and they put more effort into that. So there was benefits both ways. Um, you and I can talk all day and, and we enjoy having long conversations. <laughs> the podcast has more limited time constraints. I want to ask you one other education policy question, one other thing. The other area that you're at me about and we're, we're talking about is concerns you have about how the promotion system yes. operates. Just, just give us a sense of 
How do you think we need to improve that? Look, I think we need to target people early and I think we need to do it more systematically and apply some standards. I think um, just having the CV um, and uh, a short five or six questions at an interview, potluck whether you get taken an interview, not get taken, where, we, where the department doesn't really know who went to interview, he didn't, who was successful, who was it? I think that's too hit and miss. And we're not necessarily applying the same standards for a position at a difficult staff area as to a favourable staff area. I'd like to see us get some more consistency and rigour back into it. Early identification, um, so they can really make that those critical choices of who gets into positions because after all they affect the lives and the working lives of both students and teachers in a very dramatic way. We want to make sure we get the, the right people into those positions. That's a conversation that we'll be continuing Absolutely. once the microphones are off. One final question. You, know, you talked about your, your great music teacher and, and I understand you play banjo, guitar, mandolin and have begun to dabble in uh, writing music. You've been writing music for a long time, but most recently a musical about Pete Seeger. Tell us about that. Uh, well, Pete Seeger, of course, was uh, uh, he died a few years ago, uh, born in 1919, but he was uh, regarded as the probably the most banned, boycotted, blacklisted singer in American history. Of course, he was uh, a left-wing protest folk singer, uh, highly influential. And why was the, this person who was blacklisted, prevented from being heard on radio and TV for for nearly 20, 25 years, why did he become one of the most influential? So I wrote a, wrote a, uh, a show about that. And one of the reasons he became influential is he invented the college circuit. He basically went around and, and sowed seeds into the minds of thousands and thousands of college kids People like Paul Simon, uh, Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul and Mary, Joan Baez, all these people who say, oh, yes, he came to our high school, he came to our college. I wanted to pick up a guitar and write songs after Pete Seeger. So I think that was a, that's a fascinating tale, highly influential. Um, uh, and uh, we did it and I eventually got a chance to go to the US, to the New York. I took some leave from, from teaching, my long service leave, and went over and visited him in the States with my script where he took a red pen out and uh, proceeded to tell me that uh, the meeting with Woody Guthrie didn't occur this way and the, the big concert with Paul Robeson was not quite as I have said it. And he wrote things like, far too melodramatic, leave it out, leave it out. So it was a, I, was, I was being That's schooled. A tough editor. That's I, a tough editor. Well, right in front of you. I didn't, wouldn't have minded so much if he'd done it privately, but in front of you it's, it's very yes. confronting. And then we got, he got his banjo out and sang a couple of songs. That's a, that's a private concert. And, and, and one day when you stop being head of the Federation, you're going to go do the college and school tour to, you know, drive up insurrection and a new generation of students? Look, Mark, my, my, if when I, when, even when I leave, I'll be getting on a plane going to the US to buy a banjo. I've got one in, in my sights. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll know when that time comes. Thanks very much for the conversation today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of Every Student. Never miss an episode by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice or by heading to our website at education.nsw.gov.au slash every hyphen student hyphen podcast. Or if you know someone who is a remarkable innovative educator that we could all learn from, you can get in touch with us via Twitter at New South Wales Education, on Facebook, or email everystudentpodcast at det.nsw.edu.au. Thanks again, and I'll catch you next time.